Luke chapter 21, and we are going to begin this morning, verse 5, we have, let's see, about 20 verses to explore this morning. I trust God will do a great work in our lives, feeding us His truth. I'm delighted to consider Christ's Word with you this morning, Luke 21, beginning in verse 5. You'll find that on page 880 if you want to use the Pew Bible in front of you. Luke 21, verse 5, hear now the Word of God. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, as for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, teacher, when will these things be and what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, See that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. And then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, and in various Places, famines, and pestilences, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will, all be, you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, and know that its desolation has come near, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the, inside the city depart, and let not those who are out in the country enter it, for these days, these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant, And for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against the people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time that the Gentiles are fulfilled. Our Father, we're thankful for your word. In many ways, a troubling word, and yet at the same time, an assuring word. We ask that you would give us hearts to hear it and that it would impact our lives as we consider the teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ. So help us to be changed through his word, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. It was in the 19th century that Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism and a self-proclaimed prophet of God, announced that the end of the world would come in his lifetime. He died in 1891. Charles Russell, who started the Jehovah's Witness cult, declared that Jesus would return in 1914. He did not. In 1998, NASA engineer Edgar Wisenant wrote a book, 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988, which sold millions. It did not do so well in 1989. Pat Robertson, in his book, The New Millennium, declared the world would end in 1990. In 1997, during Holy Week, there was a vernal equinox and a partial lunar eclipse, and the Hale-Bopp comet was lighting up the night sky, which led Marshall Applewhite and the 39 members of the Heaven's Gates cult to commit mass ritual suicide, claiming that there was a spaceship in the tail of the comet that would take their souls off to heaven. In 2011, Harold Camping put billboards all over America, announcing Jesus will return on May 11th. 
and we could go on and on and on. In fact, there's a whole wiki page. And there are hundreds, if not thousands, of predictions of the end. They're all interesting in some way, all very different, except they all have one thing in common. They're all wrong, every single one of them. Of course, we're fascinated with the idea that the, the world will end, right? People read the headlines, they see that this war or that earthquake or this new credit card chip, right? And they say, well, this must be the end. In 1995 through the year 2007, Christian author Hal Lindsey published a series of novels, 16 of them, called the Left Behind series. Seven of those 16 novels, all dealing with the end of the world, reached number one on the New York Times bestseller list. In fact, in 1998, the first four books simultaneously held the first four positions on the New York Times bestseller list, selling over 65 million copies. Clearly, there's an interest in the end of the world. This is a topic which we will consider the next two weeks. After all, it is Advent season, right? So what better time to talk about the end of the world than Christmas, right? Merry Christmas. If you're visiting, by the way, the reason why we're talking about this is not some kind of macabre tendency I have. It just so happens we're preaching through Luke's gospel, and here we are, and, you know, and find ourselves here in Luke chapter 21. And so we'll spend a couple weeks before we kind of move into more Christmas messages. But uh, seriously, I think this will actually help us during this Christmas time. It might be helpful during Christmas time to be reminded of what is permanent and what is passing. It might be helpful when we're online, shopping in the malls, getting ready to realize that things as they seem are perhaps not as important as we give them credit. The conversation that Jesus is having with the apostles is on Tuesday of Holy Week. He's cleansed the temple, as you know. In fact, we've kind of come full circle in Luke's Gospel. Remember how Luke's Gospel started? This prophet named Zechariah in the temple. An angel appeared to him and said, you're going to have a son who will be the forerunner to the Messiah. Luke chapter 2, we see Jesus is born. He's taken to the temple, and there he's dedicated to the Lord. He's atoned for, and Simeon takes him up in his arms and praises God. It's Later in that chapter that we see 12-year-old Jesus back at the temple, and there he discovers his messianic mission, saying, I must be about my father's business. In the next chapter in Luke's Gospel, and Jesus is 30 years old, and he starts his ministry, and tempted by the devil, where do they find themselves? But on the roof of the temple, and, and now at the end of his ministry, Jesus has once again come back to the temple where he will predict the end of that building, and not just that building, but that city, and just not that city, but he will predict the end of the world. He will declare that the world is going to end. And so he explains how we should live in light of that reality, that things are not as they seem, Jesus explains. Things are not permanent, and therefore you and I, the first truth that Jesus helps us understand, we should not live for what is passing. Do not live for what is passing, as you see in verse 5. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings. So there they are at the temple, and, and there they, the temple kind of captures their, their interests. You know, I think it would be helpful um, to realize how magnificent the temple was. Uh, we are, are used to big buildings, right? If you go to D.C., uh, you will see ornate, glorious buildings, if you dare, right, to head that direction. If you've traveled, well, if you travel, where do you go? You go to the beach, you go to the mountains, or you go to big buildings, right? And so if you're in London, you'll see Buckingham Palace, won't you? If you're in Rome, you'll see St. Peter's Basilica. If you're in Durham, you'll see Duke Chapel, right? right? This is where you go. You see these glorious, ornate Wonderful buildings, right? But you have to remember that these guys, they don't live next to D.C. They don't travel. These are country boys. Their house is the size of a couple of our parking stalls made of mud, brick, and straw. Right? The, the, the temple, therefore, would be the most majestic building they ever saw. One, one of the most majestic things, in fact, anyone had saw. It was one of the wonders of the world. 
Now, I see we've already put the picture up here of Solomon's temple. This is a temple that would be destroyed in the 6th century by the Babylonians. I want you to see Solomon's temple, of course, was a glorious, wonderful, incredible building. But when they, the, the, the exiles returned, they rebuilt the temple. We call that the second temple. And it was nothing compared to Solomon's temple in regards to glory until the year 20 B.C. when King Herod began a, a reconstruction process, a project on the temple. So you've seen Solomon's temple. There's Herod's, Herod's temple. There you go. And you can see that it's much more ornate and much larger. In fact, let me show you side by side what they might look like if you'll go to the next slide. You see, there on the left, Solomon's temple, small building compared to Herod. And of course, Herod was going to add the courtyard. From what I understand, the entire courtyard in the temple district would take up one-sixth of the entire size of the city of Jerusalem. And for last, I'll just show you, a, a. this is not the actual temple, as you know. It does not exist anymore. But this is a model of it, a reconstruction. You can see that it was a, a glorious and wonderful building. Okay, you, you could advance through those slides. In fact, the Jewish historian talks about the glory of the temple with this description. His name is Josephus. He says, The whole outer works of the temple was in the highest degree worthy of admiration, for it was completely covered with gold plates, which when the sun was shining on them, glittered so brilliantly that they blinded the eyes of the beholders, not less than when one gazed at the sun's rays itself. And on the other sides where there was no gold, he writes, the blocks of marble were of such pure white that to strangers who have never previously seen them from a distance, they look like a mountain of snow. In fact, the the disciples even, as you see there in verse 5, comment on the noble stones. These stones made of pure marble be 45 feet long, 11 feet wide, 14 feet high, weighing about 200,000 pounds. And they would build this temple without caterpillar, without cranes, stacking one stone upon another until they reached the golden roof. And these disciples, they're in awe. This, they said, this is amazing. They said, this is glorious. They said, this is majestic. And Jesus said, it's all coming tumbling down. As you see in verse 6. As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. It's coming crashing down. And you have to understand this, how improbable this prophecy is, and how astonishing. I mean, you know, I think the only similar way would be like if, if someone was in D.C. and say, you understand that Capitol building with his dome and every, all the columns? It's, it's coming down. It's going to be destroyed. Or in Buckingham Palace saying, that, that palace is going to be torn down, and one brick will not remain upon another. It's an astonishing prophecy. In fact, it's even more for them, because he's not talking about the, the residents of, of uh, legislatures, or the residents even of a king here on earth, but the actual residents of God. We, we could have a government without the Capitol building, right? In fact, I'm pretty sure we could have a government without Congress, right? But they, how, how do you have a religion without the place where you atone for sin. And yet Jesus says it's, it's coming down. It will be destroyed. The, this temple that they're amazed at will not last. Do not act as if it's permanent. As if it will, you'll never be without them. Well, what does last? Well, look over in verse 33. We'll consider this next week, I trust. But Jesus says heaven and earth will pass away, but, but my words will not pass away. Heaven itself is fleeting. Earth is fleeting. It will soon be gone. But what I say, what I stand for, is going to endure forever. That Christ's words will never fall like that beautiful building upon a hill. And so he says, do not marvel at the stones. Don't give your heart to the pursuit of riches. Don't sell your soul for pleasures. Don't set your hopes on ease and comfort and retirement and golf scores and decorations and travels and trinkets. It's all passing. These massive stones compared to the words of Jesus are like little Lego bricks. This is not going to last. 
So what then do we rest our lives on? What should we put our hope in? What should we give our heart to? Give it to Christ. He will endure. His words will endure. In fact, he proved it, right? Because the building which seemed indestructible to them was destroyed 40 years after he said it. Which I think clearly raises some questions in the disciples' mind. Right? Okay, this temple is coming down. They want to know when and how. If we try to reconstruct this event, we believe this is at the end of Jesus' teaching there on Tuesday. And we've looked all throughout Luke 20 of his battle with those religious leaders. And it seems like as if they're leaving the temple area, they begin to marvel at the temple. And they're headed over to the Mount of Olives. Look in verse 37. It says, every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the Mount called Olivet. The Mount of Olives is about 150 feet higher than, than Jerusalem, so would it afford an incredible view of the temple? We know from the other two Gospels that record this teaching, Matthew and Mark, that, that Jesus actually gave the bulk of his teaching on, on the Mount of Olives. It's called the Olivet Discourse. And it's there that they're looking down on this marble and golden building in the setting sun, they ask in verse 7. Teacher, when will these things be and what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? It's interesting to me that they didn't say, no way this is happening. They believed him. They trusted it would happen. They just asked him when. They want to know how. And his answer, this all of that discourse, will be the final teaching that we will receive in Luke's gospel. In fact, Jesus' teaching will go beyond their question. It will, he'll begin to discuss the final judgment. It's not the end of Jerusalem, but the end of the world, which is why, what makes this, this passage so complex. The Olivet Discourse, according to some commentators, is the most debated section in all of the New Testament. Because it, the debate is, well, what, when is he talking about the destruction of the temple? When is he talking about the end of the world? And when is he talking about both? Right? He's talking about events that are, are near and events that are far. So one commentator says reading Luke 21 is like reading with bifocals. Right? That, that you, you're looking at the things that are close, but you always have to keep the, the main events in the background. You have to be aware of those. This is how prophecy throughout the Old Testament would often work. It would have, take two events that are similar and put them together, and you read it almost as if it's the same event. Uh, 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 my daughter, Anna, and I, we were uh, this summer driving from South Dakota uh, to the big sky, uh, the Cloud Peak Wilderness in Wyoming. The mountains reach over 13,000 feet, and we're going to spend four or five days uh, walking uh, in the mountains. And as you drive up on the high plains and you see these mountains, which were covered with snow, it was way too much snow, but anyways, we went anyways, it was awesome. Uh, um, it, you look at those mountains and the peaks... They all look like they're right next to each other, right? But when you're in the mountains, you realize they're not close at all. And that's what this kind of prophecy is. When you look at it from afar, it all looks together. But once you're like living in those times, you realize how far it's spread out. And I think the reason Jesus is bringing these two events together, the destruction of Jerusalem and the end of the world, is because they're similar. The destruction of Jerusalem is an analogy for the end, right? And, and therefore, in telling us about how this city will be destroyed, we learn about the final judgment. And we realize that both will be times of trouble. And so Jesus tells us, secondly, do not fear. Do not fear. Consider verse 9. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified. For these things must first take place. But then the end will not be at once. Then he said, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. You see what he's saying is there's going to be war. There's going to be battles. But he says there in verse 9, that's not the end. Don't think that's the end. And, and not just that, but there'll be natural disaster too. Verse 11, there will be great earthquakes in various places, famines and pestilences, and there will be great terrors and great signs from heaven. Now, by the way, all these events happened prior to the destruction of Jerusalem. Nations were rising against nation in battle. There were at least three recorded famines between the time Jesus said this and 70 AD when Jerusalem fell. One famine in Rome itself. We know there were earthquakes in Laodicea and Colossae and Pompeii. We even know there were cosmic signs. The Jewish historian Josephus would write about unbelievable meteor showers during this time. So all these things happened prior to the fall of Jerusalem. 
but they haven't stopped, right? The fall of Jerusalem doesn't, there's no more war, right? Have we ever got to a time in history where we said, okay, everybody's well fed, no more famine. Okay, everybody's at peace, there's no more war. Have we reached that time? In fact, in the 3,421 years of recorded history, we have only 268 in which there was no war. So this happened before the fall of Jerusalem. This continues to happen. And so what Jesus says in verse 9 is very helpful for us. He, he says to us that, that these have to take place first. It's not the end. Of course, the end's going to be filled with trouble and trial and difficulty and famine and tyranny and war. But he says in verse 9, these things must come first. Or in Matthew's account, he says, see that you are not alarmed, for this must take place first, but the end is not yet. So these things do not mean the end is here, which is exactly what so many people assume. Right? Is that not what pe- people look around, they read the headlines and say, okay, well, this must mean the end is happening. The Russians did this with Napoleon. The Europeans did this with Hitler. It's what we do. North Korea has ballistic missiles. China's getting stronger. There's more hurricanes happening. There's a famine in Yemen. You know what this means, right? Clearly, Jesus is coming tomorrow, right? And that's what we say. We just say things like that. And, and he may be. Maybe he is coming tomorrow. I don't know. And neither do you. And neither does anyone. The point of Jesus' is giving is not to set a date. The point is to remind us that in this world, we're going to face trouble both now and at the end. And just because you're a Christian doesn't mean you get to be saved from the impacts of a fallen world. So we're going to face trouble. So what do we do? Look in verse 9. He says, do not be terrified. Which I think is an amazing statement. Famine, natural disaster, rumors of nuclear war. And Jesus says, okay, this is what you do. You don't fear. Right? Why? Because God is in control. We above all people are not to be fearful and anxious, not afraid of what this world can throw at us. We don't hope that God will exempt us from suffering. Right? We will suffer. When you're suffering, God's not picking on you. You happen to live in a fallen world. Some people experience it in different ways. You experience it in a hard way. Others, small ways. But God's not picking. This is a fallen world. It's a world of trouble and hardship. Instead, what we do is we trust that God is good and trust that he will help us through it and trust that the best is to come and trust that he is coming again. And when he comes again, he will put an end to all of this. Creation will obey the voice of its creator. Human strife will end when the Prince of Peace comes to shatter our swords and break our chariots. And all things will be made new on the day that the Son of God comes back for us. So my brothers and sisters in Christ, do not fear this world and the troubles it brings. He is in control. In fact, as I mentioned, it seems like every earthquake or war, there's another one who emerges who has the answer as to when the end is coming. You see that? Jesus even mentions as much in verse 8. He says, and he said to them, see that you are not led astray, for many will come saying two things. One, I am he, and two, the time is at hand. Jesus says, do not be led astray, or number three, do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. Now, we've already kind of rehearsed, so a bunch of people have said the world is coming to an end. The end of the world talk always brings out the crazies, I think. But there's also some people who are even more crazy than that. Some people come out and say, I'm actually Jesus. I am he. Like Arnold Potter in the 1800s. who said the spirit entered him and he became Potter Christ. Or like Soon Moon, who started the unification church cult in Korea. I think it was shortly after his second marriage. He said that he himself is the second coming of Jesus Christ. Or Jim Jones, our very own, who said he was the, of the, rein, he was the reincarnated Jesus, Buddha, and Vladimir Lenin, which I think is a very interesting combination. Right? And Jesus says what? Don't go after them. False teachers will prey on our insecurities. They will prey on our hopes. Please understand not every gifted Every charismatic, 
person, every person who writes a book or has a YouTube channel or is on the television is right. It's not enough to be charismatic. You have to be truthful. And so be careful who you read. Be careful whom you listen to. If you're not sure, ask one of your elders. That's what we're here for. Ask me. Is this person okay? Does this person teach the truth? Some, they always put a kernel of truth in there and twist it. Let me tell you this. If someone gives you a date when Jesus is returning, you, once you read the date, the next step you do is throw the book in the trash can. Okay? If someone gives you a date, you turn off the television because what, they're, they're either mistaken or worse, they're liars. We don't know when. He didn't tell us when. We are, as one pastor says, we are not the planning committee to the second coming of Christ. We are the welcoming committee, right? We exist to welcome him when he returns, but we do not plan the party because we do not know when it is happening. Do not be deceived. And fourth, Jesus tells us, the fourth, do not, don't, do not give up. Don't give up, as we see in verse 12. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. Persecution is coming, Jesus tells us, right? Synagogues, rulers, it happened in Jesus' day. In fact, in just a couple days, right? Jesus knows what this will be like. Read the book of Acts, you'll see the apostles constantly being persecuted. But it ends then, it continues in our day. We continue to be persecuted, Christians. And sometimes people will tell you that if you're a follower of Christ, that you should just have an easy life and comfortable life and rich life and healthy life. And Jesus says, no, it's the exact opposite. If you follow me, there's one thing you can count on, it's being opposed. It's being persecuted, especially if you follow Christ in a Muslim nation or a communist nation or even in a secular nation like ours, there is going to be opposition to those who follow Jesus. And not just opposed by those in authority, but even by your family, as you see in verse 16. You'll be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And some of you they will put to death. Those whom you love, Jesus says. You meet Jesus, you give your life to Jesus, and your family might disown you, or your spouse might desert you, or your boss might fire you. The, those who are close to you might turn on you. And in fact, everyone might turn on you, as you see in verse 17. You will be hated by all, he says. Not every individual, but all types of people for my name's sake. You're going to be hated. You're not going to be popular if you follow Jesus. Settle that in your mind. Christians are not popular in this world. And so do not decide what you're going to believe and what you will stand for based upon what is popular. As a, a, a recent megachurch pastor did, an evangelical megachurch pastor, just a month ago went on uh, the television show The View. And no, I don't watch The View, in case you're wondering. But he's asked a very simple question about a very simple Christian belief. And he would not answer. He twisted and turned as best he could in order to get the applause of the studio audience and the hosts that were there. And a very simple, easy opportunity to stand for Jesus, and he refused to. And, of course, I don't know his heart, but it sure looked like to me what he wanted to give an answer. That's popular. We're not going to be popular persecution is normal. Do not be scared as our culture continually goes against the Christian standards. We need to stand with Christ and endure hardship and trust his promises, which are wonderful. Look in verse 18. But not a hair on your head will perish, he says. Now, he's not saying you won't suffer. He just said they're going to kill some of you in verse 16. But what he is saying is that when you suffer in this life, your eternal reward is secure. In fact, even in this life, he's going to be with you, as you see in verse 13. This that will be your opportunity, he says. Not your tragedy, your opportunity. You're arrested, you're bound, you're brought before jailer and judge. It's your opportunity to do what? To bear witness, right? So you get arrested so you can talk to people about Jesus. Now, you might think that's a very interesting evangelism strategy, right? Persecution leads to witness. Right? That might not be the strategy you would choose, but it is clearly a strategy that God has chosen. Right? Perse- you know, evangelism always brings persecution. Persecution 
gives us opportunities to evangelize. They always go hand in hand. In fact, when people oppose you, I think the attention is on you. It's your opportunity to tell them about Jesus. Tragedies, in other words, what Jesus is saying are opportunities to talk about him. So if things go wrong in your life, things go unplanned. I don't know all the reasons. But one reason I know is that it will probably give you an opportunity to tell people about Christ. To tell them there's a world beyond this world. There's a king beyond our king. There's a kingdom that will never end. In fact, this king will come and help you, as you see in verse 14. Settle, therefore, in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. So even when those who are closest betray us, Jesus says, I will not. I'm going to be with you. I will be at your side. In fact, you don't even have to prepare in advance. Now, this does not mean, pretty sure, you don't have to prepare your sermons before you preach them, as some have suggested. Pretty sure that's not what he's talking about. Pretty sure what he's saying is don't go home today and sit on your couch and think, okay, if I get arrested, how am I going to handle this? What am I going to say? And Jesus says, you don't need to prepare for that. In fact, you probably can't prepare for that, right? I will help you when the need arises, when the situation is beyond your control, right? Because so many of us look at situations and say, I can never do that, right? We've been going over the, uh, uh, over the Reformation heroes in Sunday school class, and so many of them gave their lives, like uh, Zwingli, we consider this morning, and we think, well, I can never do that. Well, we can't do that now, but I wonder if we're in that situation. Would not God come and help us and give us the grace at that time, right, to, to get us through it, that he would assist us, that he would uh, equip us to to go and to be his witnesses. I don't think anybody ever says, you know what, I think I would make a pretty good martyr, right? I think if that ever happened, I would do a good, no one does that, right? And yet God will come at that time and, and help us. He will come alongside and equip us, just like he did with the apostles, who never seemed to be a loss for words, whether it was Stephen before the Sanhedrin, before they stoned him, or Peter before the high priest, before he whipped them, or Paul before King Agrippa. Every time they were in prison, they declared their faith that the tomb is empty, Christ is risen, and reigning in heaven, and he is returning again, and Jesus gives them words to say. In fact, the more they suffer... Seems the bolder they witness, even to the very end, as we see Jesus encourage us to not give up in verse 19. By your endurance, you will gain your lives, he says. That is, if you endure to the end, you will be saved. Saving faith does not renounce Jesus in times of trouble. Saving faith, in fact, does the opposite. Its grip gets harder on Jesus in the midst of trial. Endure, Jesus says. Don't give up, Jesus says. Finish the race, Jesus says. I think we underestimate the value of endurance. Christ doesn't say you have to run this race with a smile. He doesn't say that you have to run this race in comfort or style. He just says you run the race and you finish it. You end your life with a profound love for Jesus and obedience to his commands, a hope in his promises, and and you run that race to the very end, and he won't let you run alone. He will help you. He will not not only save those who endure, all who endure will endure in his strength. Fear not, I am with you, be not dismayed, for I am your God and will still give you aid I will strengthen you, help you, and cause you to stand upheld by my gracious, omnipotent hand. Endure. Don't put your heart on what's passing. Don't fear. Don't be deceived. Don't give up. That's what we ought not to do in light of the end. What should we do? Well, consider lastly, we are to trust Jesus. We should trust him. He has proven himself to be trustworthy, as we see in verse 20. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then you know that desolation has come near. Thirty years after Jesus spoke these words, Jewish people in Israel led an armed revolt against the Roman occupiers in 66 AD. 
finally in face of a superior army led by the Roman general Titus, who would eventually become Caesar, the Jews retreated into the walled fortress of Jerusalem. Rather than trying to take the city immediately, Titus just had his soldiers surround the city, as Jesus said in the spring of 70 A.D. It would be a time of unbelievable suffering, especially for the most vulnerable, just as Jesus said in verse 23, alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Because of the siege, the people starve for the next five months. Some accounts describe cannibalism, anarchy, others eating dust from the ground simply to put something in their stomach. It was, as Jesus says, days of great distress. One ancient historical account says bodies swollen from starvation roamed like phantoms through the marketplaces and collapsed wherever their doom overtook them. The city was finally taken in October of 70 AD, and when the Romans entered into it, there were bodies everywhere. And they met almost no resistance at all. Those who were alive, they slaughtered, killing, uh, according to Josephus, 1.1 million people, taking another 97,000 into captivity. It was a destruction, perhaps unlike any that had occurred up to that point. And of course, the temple was destroyed down to its foundation just as Jesus said. I imagine when Jesus said this, there were some who maybe mocked him a little bit in their heart. Come on, Jesus. I mean, this, this building is the greatest building in the world. The walls around Jerusalem are unparalleled. I think I'll be okay. They might have laughed when he said it, but they didn't laugh when it was happening. And so it will be in the final judgment. that People will laugh at the idea of an end. Maybe there are some even here chuckling in your heart about this simplistic idea that there is a judge who is coming who will judge the world. I think that's silly and and laughable. I tell you, you will not laugh when it happens. In fact, Jesus predicted the fall of Jerusalem with precision accuracy. I think the fact that he could tell us that was going to happen is proof that he knows what ultimately will happen. If the first happened, the second will happen, which he'll go on and explain, and we'll consider God willing next week. In fact, these two ends, the end of Jerusalem and the end of the world, I think are are linked. The fall of Jerusalem is simply a preview of what the world will look like, the end of the world. Charles Spurgeon, been preaching on this passage, said the siege of Jerusalem was just a rehearsal. Perhaps you're uh, here this morning, you're not a Christian. We're delighted that you could come and be with us. We hope you feel welcome here. I want you to simply put this idea in your, in your mind that Jesus' prediction of the fall of Jerusalem is at, at the least reason not to consider him simply another religious teacher. Whether you agree with him or not, he thought he had knowledge of the future. So he can't be just another religious guru. He's predicting future events, and I believe he's been right so far. I, I, I believe that, that he promises this world will not endure as we know it, that the king will come in judgment and, and for some and salvation for others. In fact, I think the fall of Jerusalem, as terrible as it was for those people, is actually an act of mercy for the rest of us. That we can see Jesus foretold this would happen. He must be right about everything else he says, giving us an opportunity to repent and to receive the grace and mercy he would offer us even today. And my Christian brothers and sisters, if Jesus were to return today, is there anything you would regret not having done? Are there areas in your life you need to obey? Are there sins you need to confess? Is there ministry you need to give? Is there a family or co-worker that you need to talk to? I think Christmas time is a wonderful time to talk about Jesus. It's a wonderful time to send an email. It's a wonderful time to... Say to someone, hey, can we get a coffee? Can I speak to you? If you have a friend, a coworker, and you say, can I, can I take 20 minutes to speak to you about what's most important in my life? And maybe I should have said this already. Would you mind? I'm, I'm not going to put any pressure on you. I, I just want you to know 
what I hold most dear. I think almost every single person would gladly listen to what you have to say. They may not agree with it, but they would listen. Right? Maybe you say, I'm not sure what to say. Well, if you're not sure what to say, set up a meeting with an elder, set up a meeting with me, and we will walk you through a very simple, memorable way to share the gospel. Very simple, that you can explain what it is you believe. See, Jesus is right. He's worthy of our trust. The temple was destroyed. I think the temple was destroyed for two reasons, by the way. I don't think we need the temple anymore, reason number one, right? The, the, the temple had a purpose, and the purpose was to prepare us for the high priest who's coming, namely Jesus, and the sacrificial lamb who's coming, namely Jesus, and the presence of God, namely Jesus. Jesus is our temple. Jesus is where we go to to meet God. Jesus is where we go to have our sins paid for. So the temple is, it, it is right that it is gone. We don't need any distractions from Christ. But the other reason it's gone is that this was judgment on the Jewish nation for murdering the Son of God. Look in verse 22. For these are the days of vengeance, he says. Verse 23, he says, this is a wrath against the people. This is the vocabulary of divine judgment of what they had done to Jesus. God gave them 40 years to repent. Most of them would not. And so Jerusalem, the place of God's chief blessing in all the world, became the place of God's chief judgment. In fact, he promised it would happen. You see there again in verse 22? He says, for these are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Well, what is written? Well, if you like this week, let me write this down. Deuteronomy 28. This is before God leads the people of Israel into the promised land. He's about to give them the city of Jerusalem, and he lays out for them. We're about to go in. He says, listen, this is how I want to bless you. I will bless you abundantly beyond your imagination if you trust me. But if you do not trust me, these are the curses I will bring upon you. And, And, of course, they would not trust him. And so God would do what is written. As it's written in Deuteronomy 28, The Lord will bring a nation against you from far away, swooping down like an eagle. They shall besiege your town until your high and fortified walls in which you trust come down throughout all your land. And you could go on and read the description. It's it's difficult to read because it is very precise and very troubling. It talks about sieges and imprisonments and starvation and cannibalism and anarchy and deportation. And this was told 1,500, 1,600 years before Jerusalem fell, right, that it would come down. The people would be judged there in Jerusalem. But you know who did not experience this? Were the Christians. The historians tell us, and not the Christian historians, Jewish historians, Roman historians, tell us when the city was destroyed in 70 AD, there is no record of a single Christian dying. Isn't that fascinating? Well, why? Well, the Christians all left Jerusalem when the Roman army approached, which is, by the way, they fled across the Jordan to a little city called Pella, and they all escaped before the siege. Now, this, this, we don't know this, but I'll tell you, this is a very strange thing to do. We don't live in a time when conquering armies come through, but if you're living in the countryside and here comes the army, what do you do? You flee to the city. You hide behind the wall fortress, right? You, 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 you find a refuge, you head to Jerusalem, and rather than going to Jerusalem, the Christians in Jerusalem, who by this time numbered in the tens of thousands, all left the city, unlike everybody else who was fleeing to it. Well, why? Well, they did what Jesus told them, as you see in verse 21. Then those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart. And let, those not, let not those who are out in the country enter it. Get out of here, Jesus says. They read these words. They saw the army coming. And they did what Jesus said. I think this is incredible historical evidence for the early date of the Gospel of Luke. Why else would these Christians flee if they are not forewarned by Jesus? You see, when God's judgment comes, the people of God find safety in God's promises. Noah was saved from the wrath of God when he obeyed God to build an ark. Lot was told to flee the city before the wrath of God fell upon it. The sons of Israel tore to sacrifice the lamb 
as the wrath of God came through, the Christians were told to head to the hills. You'll find refuge, not in cities, but by resting in the promises of God. In fact, I only know of one case in which someone who trusted all that God had said still suffered the wrath of God. His name is Jesus. He believed everything God said. The wrath was coming, but he would not flee. Instead, he would go to the cross and take the wrath of God upon himself to pay, not for his sin and transgression and iniquity, but for mine and for all who would believe in him, that we might be saved from all of God's wrath, that we might run from the wrath of God to the cross, knowing that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Have you fled to Christ? Have you found your refuge in Jesus? May God help us hear these words and heed them. Just as they did in the summer of 1939. As I share the story of Donald Gray Barnhouse with you as we end our time together this morning. The famous Barnhouse was preaching in Scotland at this time. The summer of 39. His family happened to be vacationing in France. He had to be in Belfast in Northern Ireland the following Sunday. But he had a close to a week, and he thought, you know, I haven't seen my family in a while. I'm going to hop on a plane to Paris, spend some time with my family, and then fly back to Belfast in order to arrive Saturday night to preach on Sunday. When he was buying his ticket, the individual said, well, (laughs) you don't understand. Uh, Things are not very easy in Europe. You might might not make it back in time, he said. Europe was in turmoil as rumors of war spread with the rise of Hitler's Germany. Well, Barnhouse went anyways. And within two days of arriving in Paris, Hitler invaded Poland, and every flight back to England was canceled. So Barnhouse drove from Paris to the coast, the French coast, in order to catch a ferry back to England. And as he drove, he saw signs of the coming battle everywhere. Every village he drove through, the church bells were ringing as these, these young soldiers with rifles in tow, were packing onto trains. He finally caught a ferry, and he was visiting with the captive of the ferry when over the radio he heard the report that the Prime Minister of England had demanded Hitler withdraw his troops from Poland or England would go to war. It was the last civilian uh, ferry to cross the English Channel until the war was over many years later. Barnhouse finally arrived in London, found it just as chaotic as Paris, as he was trying to catch a train to the north, he saw the railway platforms was full of crying children who were being evacuated from the city out to the countryside. He got on one of those trains, made it north, and took another ferry over to Northern Ireland, arriving in Belfast at 3 a.m. on Sunday morning. Had just a couple of hours to prepare. When he arrived at church, the entire building was packed, standing room only. As individuals were expecting war to be declared at any moment, In fact, the pastor of the church was relieved he did not have to preach that morning. He said something cheery to Barnhouse. Thank God you're here. I pray that God will give you something to say to these lads. This may be the last sermon they ever hear. As Barnhouse was getting ready to take the pulpit, one of the elders slipped him a note. It read, no reply from Hitler. The prime minister has declared war. So he got into the pulpit and he began with the words of Jesus from the Olivet Discourse. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. And then he explained his long journey from Paris to Belfast, and as he described each frightful scene, he paused and quoted Jesus, Do not be alarmed. The siren will sound and soldiers will mobilize. But do not be alarmed. Millions of homes will be broken up. But do not be alarmed. Children will be torn from their mothers and their cries will represent the wails that are going up all over the world. But Jesus said, do not be alarmed. Phil Riken writes of this event saying, As Barnhouse went through this litany of lamentation, 
piling monstrous grief on agonizing horror. The tension in the church was mounting. Finally, Barnhouse stopped and said, These words are either the words of a madman, or they are the words of God. And then he shook his fist towards heaven and cried out, O God, unless Jesus Christ is Lord, these words are the most horrible that can be spoken to men who have hearts that can weep and bowels that can be gripped with human suffering. Men are dying. Do not be alarmed. Children are crying in the misery of no beloved face in sight. Do not be alarmed. How can Jesus say such a thing? And then he answers, he can because Jesus Christ is God. He is the Lord of history. And nothing has ever happened without him knowing it. The sin of man has reduced the world to passion and fury. Men tear at each other's throats, he said. Yet Jesus is Lord. And everyone who believes in him will know the power of his resurrection. And will learn that no event however terrible, can ever separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. My brothers and sisters at Hamilton Baptist Church, no matter what this world brings, no matter what tomorrow holds, in this world of war and weeping and heartbreak and hardship and opposition, and uncertainty, our Lord comes to us in His Word and says, do not put your hearts on what is passing. Do not be deceived. Do not fear. Do not give up. But trust in Me. Our Father in Heaven, may we be faithful today and forevermore to trust our Lord in a world of uncertainty. We trust you, Jesus. No matter whether we're in hardship or ease, we bow our knee to our King, to the Lord of history, and we say to you, your will be done. We will follow you wherever you send us. May this be our hope. Place it in our hearts, Father, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.